Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a podcast for fans and creators of comedy. I am your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Fun episode today. I talked to Lindsay Calloran of UCB out of New York. She's also been in some popular videos on College Humor and has some web series work too. You're going to love her if you don't already. Follow the podcast on Twitter at There It Is Pod and like us on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter as well at Jason Farr Jokes. Also, be sure to check out the website, thereitispod.com, where you can read about some helpful blogs about various comedy aspirations and find out how you can support the podcast. Your support helps me do things like take the podcast on the road. Yes! Yes, there is a possibility that the There It Is podcast is going to make a fun trip to North Carolina in September. More details on that later, but supporting the podcast allows me to do things like that and spread the word about the podcast, get more equipment, and provide you with the best podcast that I can. I genuinely appreciate everyone who has supported me so far. Thank you so much for that. If you can, please donate, but please donate responsibly. There are plenty of groups that support law enforcement and victims of the recent tragedies that have happened all over the globe. The world needs love and support, so don't donate to me at the expense of donating to those. As we all know, comedy helps people get through tough times. People may have more immediate needs first, though, so... Once those needs get taken care of, then you can help me spread the love that is their itis. There is a global community. Let's recognize that and help each other. Community is a big aspect of improv, and that's touched on in today's great talk with Lindsay Calloran, who is phenomenal. She is a really fantastic person. We do get into a lot of improv shop talk, but we talk about both the fundamentals of doing improv as well as touch on why those fundamentals are more than just doing good scene work. Hint, it's about community. Let's get right into it. Here's my talk with UCB's Lindsay Calloran. So you are in New York City now. How long have you been there? Yes. Um, I Well, let's see. I moved to New York like eight years ago or maybe nine at this point. I, I grew up, though, in Westchester, which is like um, like 30, 45 minutes outside of the city. Mm-hmm. So I was always nearby, but I've lived here officially for like eight years, eight or nine. How did you get into performing and, and comedy? What were you doing before you moved to New York? Well, I mean, how I got into performing is like goes back pretty far. My dad, is, well, both my parents, my parents met doing musical theater, like it, like at dinner theaters in the 1970s in oh, like, wow. the Midwest. And um, so they were both really theatrical. And then my dad uh, continued acting his whole life. So all growing up, my dad did commercials and stuff. So he was always, and he was really pretty successful, I mean, at commercials for I guess it sounds like a pretty like niche market, but I mean, he was pretty successful at that. So, um, 
the idea of performing and acting in general was was always really normal in my house. And uh, so by the time I was like nine, ten, I was auditioning for community theater in Westchester, which there was a lot of community theater in Westchester and a lot yeah. of children theater and teen theater, um, <laughs> like youth theater, uh, like teenage <laughs> productions of like Sound of Music and stuff like that. So I got involved uh, with all of that really young, um, like I said, like nine, ten, and uh, really always wanted to do that. I guess in part because it was what my parents did and also because um, I loved it. Yeah, it's in your DNA, sounds like. (laughs) In the DNA, I guess. When you made the move to New York City, you had a lot of experience and a lot of of, uh, understanding of what you wanted to do. You knew you were a performer. You knew you wanted to perform. So you said, time to go to New York City and try to do something with this. Yeah, I um my uh summer before senior year of high school I did a musical theater program at NYU called Cap 21. I don't know if they still do it. I think they do. But um uh I did that and um uh, they had a uh they had an improv like class in that program within the program. And um, that was my first uh, experience with actual improv. And it was short form. It was like, uh, you know, mostly just a game, short form game. Right. Uh, and then that, after that program, it was my senior year of high school. And uh, the guy, the teacher who taught the improv class at the summer program had a year long program. And he also had uh, like a performance group uh, that would perform at the Producers Club in Manhattan, which is oh, this sure. theater on 40. 43rd Street, I think, or 44th, and uh, he asked me to join that program, uh, to the performance group. So my senior year of high school, I was commuting into the city to do this performance group, and it was like me, I was like 17, and then it was me, and I think like the next youngest, it was me and all dudes, and the next oldest guy, the next youngest guy was like 35. <laughs> wow. 40. Um, and uh, uh, there was one other girl that was there for the first show, but then she left. And then it was like, so it was just me and these guys for like a year. Um, and they're all the best. Uh, still, still, I actually like only keep in touch with them loosely now. But I mean, I went to one of their weddings and like, they're all really nice guys. But I mean, when I look back on it, I'm like, I can't believe that that worked out and that I didn't feel uh, crazy, but it actually felt very comfortable and they were really nice people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of badass that at 17 you were doing improv with people twice your age. Yeah, I guess so. Um, at the time I was just like, like I said, I mean, I had been, I was also commuting senior year into the city for acting classes, for acting lessons. Cause I, was planning to audition and did end up only applying to and auditioning for acting conservatories. That's what I wanted to do. And I applied to the best acting conservatories in the country. And, uh, I got callbacks for most of them and then didn't get into any of them. So, uh, so I was like, I was, and that's another, that's like a later story, but I mean, I was focused on the idea of performing and I had been performing my whole life. Like I said, so it was like, looking back, I'm like, I cannot believe that I was a 17-year-old girl improvising with like 30, 40-year-old dudes who had been improvising for a long time. But at the time, I felt like it was 
fun and I felt supported and encouraged by them and they were great guys and we had a lot of fun and the shows were really good and um for some reason it didn't feel weird at the time like I wasn't walking around being like I'm a hot shot like or anything I, I was I didn't have a right, lot of yeah. awareness in that way but it but you were a hot shot <laughs> I mean that's really cool yeah I mean looking I was like if, if a 17 year old today told me that they did that I would be like that's really cool you know but it's always different when it's you yeah of course yeah you auditioned for all these different conservatories and you don't get in where is your mind at this point? So that's sort of like, so, I mean, it was really, it was really hard. I had wanted to, I was like, I wanted to get into Juilliard so bad. I was like a 16 year old kid being like, I'm going to get into Juilliard. Like so obsessed. I had a flag for Juilliard. Um, like one of the little triangle flags that you like put above your bed. And I had a hat for Juilliard and I um, really wanted to, I took my, you know, uh, craft, very seriously as a 16 year old 17 year old and I really wanted to get into Juilliard um and I auditioned there my audition there didn't go great but uh I also like I really wanted to just get into any acting conservatory and so like I said um I did well and most of them like got callbacks in a few which was really hard like you know like hundreds yeah. of kids would audition and only a six would get callbacks or something um but, uh, I mean, when I didn't get in, I was like, it was, I don't know, it was really, looking back, I don't really remember exactly how it felt, except that it felt, like, I didn't give up, but I was, I was really surprised, because I, I didn't have a lot of, like, a good sense of reality when it came to that, which in some ways I think is good. I think it's good not to, if you, if you have too much, uh, too much of a sense of reality and statistics when it comes to certain endeavors, uh, you might not ever go after them <laughs> because yeah. uh, it might just be too intimidating. Right. I mean, that's, what, that's exactly what gets in people's head. Of course, because it's very scary and people don't want to fail at anything. Like, people don't want to be a failure. And so they would rather, you know, they, would, they, they literally choose to just ignore their... Um, dreams, uh, like their deep down dreams, because they know that they might, that the, the odds are really stacked against them. I mean, that's not, you know, that's an age old story. <laughs> but um, I yeah. desperately wanted to avoid that. So how did you power through? So I, um, I start, so my, so the, what would have been my freshman, or it was, it was my freshman year of college. I ended up, you know, and I was like a, I was really like a straight A student or a really um like I was pretty good at school, pretty good grades. And um but like I said, I literally didn't apply to colleges because I only wanted to go to an acting conservatory. So I like applied to acting conservatories and I auditioned for them, but I didn't I didn't even apply to colleges. I think my mom submitted me to a, a, a plot like sent in an application to a college yeah she she was helping you out there yeah um but i was like you know when i didn't get in so when, anyway when i didn't get into conservatories my first thought was i'm gonna go to my community college in westchester which was like the joke college and you know uh, just a shout out westchester community college is a great college but I, I, you know growing up where where i was in my high school it was like a joke college it was like where you went when you were you know like kind of had bad grades and weren't you know maybe were in a tough 
spot, you would just go to, to WCC, it was called. But I just said, when I didn't get into the, any acting conservatories, I just decided I'm going to go to WCC, even though I have these great grades. And I'm going to uh, commute to the city to do to keep doing the improv, which I had already been doing for a year on that team. And uh, I'm going to take um, continue taking acting scene study classes with the teacher who helped me prep for colleges, for college auditions. And that's what I did. I, I went to WCC, uh, the, the community college, and I would commute into the city for to do the improv and the scene study classes. So I just was like, okay, this is going to be different. It's going to be different than what I expected, but I'm still going to do it. Like, I didn't think about not doing it. That's great. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would give up in that circumstance. But then also, I think there are a lot of people who would have gotten in the wrong mindset. And it sounds like you just said, I'm going to keep on trucking. Yeah, I, yeah, and I, I, there was no other option for me at the time, really. Like, I, I really, I had a really, you know... What ended up causing a lot of, like, my existential anxiety uh, as I got older was, like, I had a really clear understanding, even at, like, 17. I just remember being, like, always thinking to myself, like, you have 80 years, maybe, or, like, 80, 85 years, maybe, and that's all you have, and you just have to do with it what you want, like, because that's all you have. And I remember thinking stuff like that all the time. It was very clear to me. Like, I didn't have a... I didn't like, I couldn't imagine, you know, and, and I, and I was, I was very, I was very privileged to have the, to have the freedom, you know, to, to just be like, I got to go after, I got to go after my, my dream. If if I'm able to, if I'm like physically able to, I have Mm -hmm. to do it. Um, I don't know exactly where that came from, that sense of surety, but. Um, I had that. That's what I had. It was very, it was just clear to me. Well, everything worked out. I mean, you, now you are an actor, a writer and an improviser and you're beloved in it. You're beloved in it. I mean, that's, uh, the reason Douglas suggested you. I said, who's a popular coach at UCB? I'd love to pick their brain. And he said, you, and he named one other person, which was Will Hines. Yeah, that's it. There's no other improv coaches. So give it up. Well, he said there were there were certainly others, and he definitely could have named others, but um, those are two that just immediately he tossed out. And I mean, they were, it was like he was waiting for me to ask the question or something. What I would like to know, uh, as a coach there, uh, you're also on a Herald team there, so I want to talk about that as well. But what type of teams are you coaching? I coach uh, I coach a lot of indie teams. And um, so just like independent groups of kids in the city uh, or adults, you know, in the city who want to practice and get better. And then I I coach a like a herald drill drop in practice that like anybody can come to. I've been doing that for almost a year. And uh, and then I coach, you know, some practice groups like different things. Um, I just taught an improv class at an acting studio, which was really interesting. It was like a blending of two worlds. Very cool. And you, people can go to your website, and, which I'll mention later. I'll, I'll give them the uh, address. But they can see a bunch of acting work you've done. You've done stuff for College Humor. Uh, and you are, what is the Herald team that you're on at uh, UCB? My Herald team is called Dr. Snake. Oh, fun. Dr. Snake. <laughs> 
What is the story behind that name? Oh, my God. I mean, the story behind that name is uh, both really short and very long because, the I mean, the sh- literally, the only, there's nothing behind it. I mean, it's, it's nothing. It's just two words put together. But the the story of it is is that we, it, 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 it took us an incredibly long amount of time to come up with a name and uh actually we spent literally like four hours trying to think of a name um and we literally ended up with the name senator make up and it was it was very the team was very divided or only only a little divided but we actually submitted that name to the artistic director of the theater and um she uh she denied it she straight up was like you can't name your team that um i mean i understand why she rejected it but i also love it i know i think that was sort of our point of view on it too we were like we get it but also like come on like just let us do it and i was one of the people who was like i fucking hate this but um uh but at the same time i was like i almost hated it i hated it less when it was denied because then I then I was like then I just wanted to like you know do it because I you know if you tell us we can't why can't we do Senator Make Up but I mean her point of view was like you know if you have a, everybody has bad shows and if you have a bad show it's going to be so much worse because your team name is Senator Make Up and I don't know whether or not that's true but um, I understand her point of view a little bit but uh, I have no idea how many times people have teams have been denied their names uh, first name. Uh, choice but that's what happened to us and then we spent literally four hours uh, like four hours the next uh practice our practice the next night uh thinking of another name and we literally just came up with doctor's name i mean we had like a hundred different names and we were breaking them down yeah yeah that's the story that's the story of every band that's trying to come up with a name and everyone has different ideas yeah and you write a lot as well now are you writing sketches or what do you what are exactly all are you writing what I'm mostly primarily writing now uh, are short films and, and just film writing in general, screenwriting. Uh, but I've also done a lot of sketch writing. Like I, like you said, uh, the stuff I've done on College Humor was sketch writing. And I've done some sketch writing at UCB. Um, like I put some sketches up at UCB. Do you consider yourself more of a performer or a writer, or are they just so big in your life that you're both? I think the the last thing you said, because <laughs> that's something I've asked myself sort of forever, and I always felt that I had to pick one or the other, and um, I always felt that if I picked one or the other, I could succeed more at whichever one I picked. And, um, I mean, that goes into much deeper issues of like boxing yourself into things and, and feeling like you need to fit into, um, uh, you know, co- like constructs and sort of having a, like a place with your name on it. That makes sense. Yeah. But, um, but I, I, where I'm at now is sort of like, uh, I feel like they do go hand in hand. I feel, I feel mostly, I mostly connect the idea of being a creator, of making things happen, of having ideas and making them happen, like the same way that I always have been as a maniac child. But I, I re, that's why, part of why I love improv, because you, you create something right away, you just make it happen, and that's something I've always been drawn towards. And then when it comes to filmmaking, which is what I've been focusing on the last year of my life, I, it's like, um, it's a, it's a really, sustainable, uh, beautiful expression of you have an idea and you create it in a way that is um, 
uh, what's the great word? Like, uh, it'll always be there. It's like last forever and, um, you can hopefully use it to make somebody laugh or make somebody, uh, feel cathartic or relate to you in some way. And so that's sort of where I'm at. <laughs> mm, no, that's amazing. That's really great. I like that a lot. I, I'm not one to try to pit people against themselves. I hate when people do that. I do stand up and improv and people will say, well, which do you like better? Right. Why can't I like them both? <laughs> I think in general, like, you, you know, I'm a big believer in all you need to do to be a good creator or to be a good contributor to the creative world is be yourself authentically and not mess with what is already perfectly yours, which is what you come into the world with. You come into the world with a unique point of view that is uniquely yours and different from anybody else. And once you begin to dilute that, filter it, because you're trying to fit in, that's when it becomes less and less and less and less. The more that you do that, the more that you visit it, the more that you filter it. And 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 we all nobody can avoid that because we all grow up in this society, which is fucked up. But what you as an adult, I think it's about trying to undo that and get back to get back in touch with the part of you that is uniquely yours and then create from that place. And that's sort of what I try to do, especially with with my improv, I'm working on that a lot, and also with my filmmaking. And I think most great, I've heard a lot of really incredible artists say very similar things to what I just said, of just like, it's all about just anybody can do it. Like, all of us are capable of it, every single person, but only some of us are willing to um, go through the work of, of getting to the pure state of our creative brains that are unaffected by all of the different like constructs and boxes and bubbles that we try to fit that people try to fit into. So that's what I focus on the most with my improv, with my comedy and with my filmmaking. I love all that that you said. Yeah, that's all really, really great. That truly is what an artist is doing. Um, And I think, uh, I think people could put something together. I mean, some people are content makers, but artists, they are really tapping into something unique and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I always say that this is actually, who did I even hear this from? Somebody, I I heard a quote recently about tapping the vein and now I can't even remember who said it, but um, I I do say like exactly what you said, you know, being, being an artist and create a creator of any kind, whatever, whatever medium is, to do it in a way that's that is really effective, you have to be tapping the vein. You have to just be plugging into the source and letting it come out and not fucking with it and not trying right. to like make it perfect. You have to let it be you have to let it be imperfect. You have to. You have to let it be organic and right. and really uh I mean that's why there's so many of these Hollywood movies that people hate is because they're artificial. A hundred percent. Yeah. You can be like super, um, you can try and dilute your, uh, creativity to the point where it is like mainstream, quote unquote mainstream and can, and it's super relatable or like super digestible, like that everybody, you know, the most uh, people can digest it easily, mm-hmm. but then you've taken out the parts of it that are the most special and effective and the one the part of your creativity that can really change 
people and change lives. And maybe that sounds too lofty, but I really believe in that. I think I believe in that too. Yeah, I mean that's the the kind of art that changes lives and change can has the potential to change even the world. Is is it has to be? It comes from an unaltered space inside of people. It's not main. It's not the most digestible. It's not the snap stories. It's not the you know, ABC family show. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too, but I don't know. I, I just... Well, no, but I I see where you're going. I, I totally get what you're saying because it's just, there's so many things that have been watered down so much in our culture that we right. see in, in, in our entertainment culture, that is. And I, I totally am with you. I think people are capable of doing this great work. I think great work is inspiring and impactful and I know it because it's what I've experienced with it right I want to get into talking about your coaching and when you coach are you utilizing these sort of thoughts that we're discussing in how you are coaching your teams well so hmm, okay how do I go about answering this for me as an improviser um finding my voice as an improviser came from first really sort of know the rule, learn the rules before you break them type situation where I, I sort of viewed improv in a very formulaic fashion as I was learning it, as I was coming up in improv. Um, and then once I felt completely comfortable with that, which wasn't until I was on already on my first house team at UCB, then I started exploring, you know, wait a minute, I want to be, um, I want to be unique. I want to like use my own, uh, uh, real voice more than I try to follow game, uh, uh, or more than I try to appeal to the last, like, I don't want to just, you know, uh, what is the word that people say? Like when you, when you, um, when you're just like reaching for the last pan pandering pan is that the right word pandering pandering is a good word for that yeah I didn't want to do that anymore um but that took a long time because I had to first get good at improv and so you know improv right. is no joke it's a it's a whole language especially at UCB there's a whole language that we learn um that we uh so that we can communicate with each other and create ideas together in the moment in a way that is effective and efficient and uh strong and so in order to do that you have to know what you're doing first and you have to get past that point so that then you can start to do something unique and really interesting and i think what i try to do when i coach especially when i coach newer teams is i try to i really work very hard on the rules um and I try to balance that out by doing some exercises that are completely absent of rules that just go, you know, nuts. Uh, things that are kind of just like uh, really crazy kinds of improv, uh, just to sort of keep a balance so that people don't lose their minds. But then I really focus on the rules, on like working really hard on and trying really hard to communicate to people that it's not as hard as it looks. You just have to work very hard on these rules. Um, but it's not impossible. You just have to be disciplined. It's the idea of, like, work really hard in here in sometimes a way that might not even feel fun. Uh, and then and then let that start to translate into your shows and into your 
uh, performances. Um, but you have to work really hard in practice kind of thing. Like, I don't expect anybody yeah. to be perfect right away, but it's the idea that you work really hard. You have to work really hard in practice in order to have that transition. Yeah, so there are a couple of things I'd like to talk about with that. One, about the it looks really hard. It does look really hard. Whenever I see teams that have come out of UCB, they're always amazing. They're always so on point and so fast, and you see them sort of thinking uh, on the sidelines, and it just looks so hard to do. But they're doing it, so it's people are capable of doing it. It just does look hard to do. It does It does look really hard, and I think the, a big misconception with improvisers when they're coming up in the program, uh, when they're learning – I think is that is that improv is magic and when it succeeds it's magic and almost accidental and when it fails it's almost like um unavoidable or uh or maybe that's not true. I think when people fail they just feel shitty and blame themselves, but I think they feel I think there is a misconception that to succeed is almost like magical or accidental as opposed to the truth which is that to succeed is just really well executed. Skills. It's mm-hmm. just working really hard to to succeed, and and being on a team with people where you're all communicating with one another uh, in a very specific way that we've all been taught. And so, while it does look hard, and while it is hard, it's not magic. You know, it is all agreeing and sticking to the structure, and you're following an agreed upon set of rules. Right, right. It's not it's not magic. The magic is in the experience that we all have having these moments on stage or when we're watching people on stage. I mean, when I first saw Ascat, it was magic, but not the kind of magic where you don't have to put some effort into it. <laughs> it's not a it's not a snapping your fingers sort of thing. I when I first saw it, there was a team at UCD uh, a few years ago that's no longer running there called Diamond Lion and they're a musical improv team. And when I first saw them at the B at the UCD East Theater like four four or five years ago, I was I truly thought it was magic. I did not understand how they were doing it, how it was possible, and I thought the only way that it must be happening is some sort of magical uh planets aligning thing and then you know come to find out there are very in within musical improv there are very specific structures that people follow and that they learn ahead of time and yes they are making up all the lyrics but there is still um and they're making up the melody but in terms of like the structure of a song uh it's it's really agreed upon and that doesn't make it any less good it just makes it more attainable it actually makes it it makes you say to yourself, oh, it is possible for me to do this. Yeah. I don't need to be born with some sort of stamp of capability. Like, okay, I can do this. Some people can do this and some people can't. Everybody can do it. And I think that as a coach with long-form improv, I tried. Because I was also, there's two different kinds of improv improvisers, I think. There are people who are so naturally funny and have a really good understanding of comedy and what it to be funny. And they just have that. And they come into the improv world and they learn how to do improv well the same way as all of us. But it's not, they don't ever have to work hard to be funny. And they usually tend to be more of the players uh, who are unusual in scenes, receiving support from their teammates uh, via straight manning. And, um, you know, 
there's no, those are some of the absolute best improvisers in the world. And then there's another kind of improviser who doesn't have that same, like, uh, je ne sais quoi of, of just a magical, uh, comedian and they have to work very hard to learn how to improvise well and find their comedy through improvising well. And of course, I'm sure they're also funny people as well, but it's like more a thing of like, I'm funny through my ideas. I learn how to improvise well and I execute them in that way. I support my teammates, but that's more of what I relate to. I was definitely more along that route. And I think those people and the the coaches who were more that way, and this is, I mean, honestly, a theory. And I know that there are definitely some people who cross over and would disprove my theory. But I do think that those people who had to work really hard <laughs> at improv um, know know how to teach it in a way that is like, you can do it. I did it. I had to work really hard. I, I got there. Um, and you can do it too, and I can teach you how to do it. Like, I can teach, don't give up, I can teach you how to do it. You, just because that other guy in this group is funnier than you on, like, a natural level, I don't know if that's the right best way to put it. I, th- I think that's, uh, there is something that they have, there is something that's just special and unique about them naturally that right. gets everybody to pay attention to them and just automatically laugh, like a Chris Farley. Chris Farley was a, exactly. is a perfect example. I often describe what you're talking about as the difference between Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Michael Jordan obviously still had to work hard, but he had a certain natural gift to be able to become who he became. Scottie Pippen Uh didn't, a lot of people apparently said this um, from what I've heard, uh, he wasn't necessarily like that. He just worked really hard to get to be the second best player in the NBA. I, I admittedly know nothing about basketball, but I understand the analogy. I don't, I, and I agree with what you're saying based on what you're saying. Right. And so I, I would love to hear how you coach the Scottie Pippins to believe that they too can be of the greatness or, or, you know, at least around the greatness of the Chris Farley's who are on stage. Like, how do you get, how do you present your practices and classes? Like what do you, what goes into the preparation to teach that? Well, so two, so sort of two things. First thing is, like I said, I, I grew up, um, I grew up through improv, came up through improv, um, very formula based rule oriented, um, and while I did, I was lucky enough to have a very, uh, a very strong comfortability on stage because I grew up performing, which already gave me a huge leg up in terms of some other people who had never been on stage until their first improv show. Uh, but I did, I was still very formulaic and rule-based. And because of that, I think I absorbed a lot of the rules. I think I have a really good understanding of the rules of at least the UCB style improv. And so I try to, in practices, in some ways, take away the mysticism and the, like, shiny allure of long-form improv because so many kids that come in to the improv community are so, like, enamored with improv that they almost can't see clearly because they are so intimidated they never think they'll be good at it. They love it so much. They think it's so hard. 
And they act like maniacs when they get on stage because they're so in their head and they don't even know how to do anything like a real person and so much of improv is acting like a normal person. And so I really try to strip away that sort of magical quality in practice. I'm always the first one to admit that improv is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful expressions of creativity and one of the most beautiful art forms because it's collaborative, truly collaborative, and it's it's yeah. honoring your own ideas, and there's so much that's beautiful about it. But I, in practice, I'm like, in order to get good, we have to believe that we can do it. We have to believe that it's, we can do it and that and that whether or not you are gifted in the X Factor way as a comedian, you can still do it. And you have to at least on a base level believe that in order to get better. And I try to encourage people of that on my own um, as an outside voice, uh, especially for people who I can tell are really struggling with that. But at some point, they have to believe it for themselves, you know. And so um, that's a little bit of like developing a little bit of trust with a group and like with individuals who are struggling. It's like I can encourage them for a while. And then at some point, they have to show me that they believe in themselves. Uh, or they don't have to. I'm not going to, like, quit. I mean, but, I mean, they in order to get better, at some point, they have to, like, you know, know that they're good or that they can do it. It's, it's just about learning that you can do it. It is beautiful and wonderful, but it's not magic. It is just rules and structure. So when you are, are coaching them, then when you're demystifying it, you're saying, it's just rules, guys. It's beautiful but it's not magic. All you have to do are, and then you list out the rules and you have exercises that enforce the rules. Yes. Like I, I, that's, you know, I, I like to think that I don't sound quite that like crotchety, but I do, but maybe I do. I don't know, <laughs> but it is, it is that idea of like everybody up there, you know, on Herald night are normal people who, because I mean, you know, people really, a lot of people really, obsess about improv, you know, myself included. I used to go to Herald Night and sit in the front row and, like, give standing ovations to teams that I loved and, like, go to the bar and be afraid to talk to people and stuff oh. like that. And it's not – it is not any of that. It is a it is a very beautiful art form that you can learn that anybody can do if they practice it and they learn and they demystify it. And demystifying it is often the first step because you have to – believe that you can do it in order to get good at it. You can't believe that it is a mystical thing that you're either gifted enough to do or you're not. True, yeah. I've long had the philosophy that the best performers, it's not that they are magic, it's that they are free. A hundred percent, yeah. I mean, it's, it all goes back into what we were saying of, like, tapping the vein, being authentic. You know, improv is literally just human beings acting as people like you know acting like normal people being comfortable in your own experiences like using your whole life up until this point to uh, you know in UCB we say there's game obviously which is uh, an unusual thing explored and heightened and then there is playing to the top of your intelligence which is doing whatever the fuck you would do in that situation uh, doing that in the scene like don't use your true experiences to inform how you 
play opposite of that game or how you play with that game. So right. anybody, there's no, there's no subset of rules that say to play top of your intelligence, but also be this kind of person and be more like this kind of person. And if you're this kind of person, this isn't really the right space for you. All it says is be a person, be a real person. So in that, based on that, anybody, there's no good kinds of people and bad kinds of people. There's just people who are willing to be authentic and be themselves and who are capable of being themselves. So all you have right. to do is be yourself. And that also plays into demystifying because if you, if you say to yourself that like, this is just a thing that I can learn how to do by following these rules, then you might have an easier time being yourself as opposed to if you're like, oh, this is so magical and scary and elusive. I, I can't be my, I can't possibly be myself. You know what I mean? I think it's a lot of tearing down walls. I mean, just, you have to be free enough to express emotion and express yourself and to believe in the world that you're pretending to be in. And there are a lot of emotional blocks that get in the way. Yeah, I mean, you have to know how to act like a normal person. I do a lot also as a coach. I do a lot of exercises that are based in not playing game and not playing unusual thing and just playing real and trying and playing, you know, just be to be be two normal people doing something. And I'll let that go. I'll let a scene go for five or six minutes and just let people practice what it's like to be real people because that is a major, major problem, I think, in the UCB community is people, students. You know, 101 is all about learning how to improvise well or starting to learn how to improvise well, and then 201 is game. And from then on, it's game, 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 game. And people forget about listening and yes-anding and committing and reacting, and, and people are just obsessed with the idea of finding this 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 game that's somewhere out there in the world and they have, you know, just have to shoot it with a bow and arrow. And if they don't, they're going to fail. I mean, they forget uh, it becomes so challenging. It it all becomes scary. It all becomes so scary. And as soon as they get into the scene, the time is ticking and they got to find it and they're not listening. They're not acting like a real person. And so I do a lot of, especially with more advanced improvisers who are advanced and understand improv, but aren't yet on house teams and aren't yet, you know, the pros, uh, I, I usually end up spending a lot of time with them on the side of improv that is just acting and being comfortable and not panicking about game and letting game come to you through organic scene work, just being in a place, being in a base reality, having a strong sense of who you are in the scene, who you are to your scene partner, where you are, what is the context, and letting an unusual thing happen from within that as opposed to forcing it. I, and I often find that that is the biggest problem that more advanced players have who can't break through to the next level is that they mm. can't relax in a scene and just trust the skills that they have, trust the skills that they've learned, and let game come to them. And don't force the game. Yeah. yeah I see a lot of – not. I've seen a lot from beginners. I've seen a lot of people who are uh, – so focused on game that when they and they and with something completely out of left field that had nothing to do with what's previously happened in the scene right because they're panicking and they want to find they want to find a game they want to have something to focus the scene on and uh, i don't know i mean it's it's hard i mean there are times when that's okay there's times when it's okay to just introduce an unusual thing 
But if you're doing it at the expense of listening and reacting, that's a problem, obviously. Oh, yeah. So a lot of your coaching, it sounds like, is calming people's nerves and just pointing them in the direction of the rules and getting them to run exercises. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And I think in terms of calming them, I think that's very true. I'm very big on energy and reading the energy of a room and trying to structure a practice based on the energy that I feel in the room. I'm, I mean, I'm very into, uh, like, in another aspect of my life, I'm very into energy and meditation, and <laughs> that's a whole other side of me uh, that is very true and real. And when it comes to coaching, and just from my own experiences, if you are panicked and you're on a back line and you're panicking and you're distressed, you're not going to listen, you're not going to perform your best. And so I like to do, I do a lot of things and exercises that are literally just meant to cleanse the energy of the room. That might sound insane, but I do things like before a team, let's say we're running Heralds, before we start a Herald, I'll make the whole team get into a big huddle and, you know, sing, sing the chorus of, my heart will go on or something. And it's just meant to do something really stupid and fun together as a group that has nothing to do with skill, improv skill, that is literally just doing a fun thing together. Um, and the purpose of that is to get out of your head and get into a space that is good for for improv, which is a space of non-judgment, not feeling like you're being judged by other people and not feeling like you are judging yourself. And I am very big uh, as a coach on making it explicitly clear that if you're judging someone else in the room, you're a huge part of the problem. And I, I also, you know, the worst improvisers I find are the ones who say that scene, my scene went bad because of that other person like who blame other people and think their improv can be um, can succeed or fail based on the other person in the scene, which I truly don't think is true. And I make a real point of establishing when I first start working with a group, just making it explicitly clear that I don't agree with that and that um, if you're judging other people in the scene, you are truly failing at this art form and you're not not only are you not experiencing how nice and beautiful it can be when you're truly collaborating with other people, but also you're just being an asshole and you're putting other people in their head. Yeah, I would agree. I have kind of a hard time with that just because I, for one, completely agree and have experienced that attitude of, oh, I'm judging other people. That's such a huge distraction for me and it's putting out a bad energy that's becoming a distraction for them and so I totally believe that that is just that has no place in improv but at the same time I've had scenes where I thought huh why isn't this going well oh they keep denying everything I bring to the table but I don't want to like blame them and say like it's their fault this scene isn't going well either. But I'm I'm having a hard time with that balance. Well, so what I would say to that is I I truly think that every bad improviser is an opportunity for you to become a better improviser. Agreed. People are bad improvisers. That is a hundred percent true. And I am in no way saying that that's not true. That there aren't bad improvisers. That there aren't people making bad choices and scenes. Uh, and and choices that seem that they're halting the scene. But 
there are there are so many reasons why the number one rule in improv is yes and there are and 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 as it applies to this situation, you have to learn how to say yes to everything and view everything as a gift and to not get your ego involved. Mm. When you get there, when your ego is not involved, and when you're when you're in the moment and you're you're really trying to just make something out of nothing, and you're listening and supporting your scene partner no matter what. You can make every time that somebody somebody makes shitty choices and you're in a scene and somebody is not listening to you or they're denying you or they're just obviously panicking and making crazy moves. You find a way to make that work, and you find a way to stay true to ev- all the skills that you have and all the things that you've learned, and you you find a way to to execute everything that you know, even with this person that seems to be halting the scene and not allowing it to move forward. And you look at it as a gift because it's an opportunity for you to grow because you're really trying hard. Improv is at its core about making the other person look good. And the worse off, the worse improviser you get, the worse the improviser is that you get into a scene with, the better you have the opportunity to look. And I always tell people that with auditions because auditions in UCB, I mean, I forget about it, like such a huge, huge stressful thing. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, because the first round of auditions is two-person scenes, and there's like eight people in the room, and then you each do two two-person two scenes, and you just walk out with whoever, and sometimes you know them, and sometimes you don't. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that, like, I don't want to step out with somebody bad, or, you know, I'm not going to step out with that person, or, you know, afterwards people say that person fucked up my scene. And it's like, they don't. The judge of a great improviser isn't always, oh, did everything go great and there were no problems and they did a fine scene? Sure. Yeah. Okay, great. Is that a great testament to how well, how great they are as an improviser? Maybe, but also maybe not. I mean, maybe they got lucky. Like, that happens. But but if a scene is going poorly and you see somebody dig into their toolbox and use the tools that they have and use the skills that they have to make the scene work and to get it back on track and to support the other person no matter what, that is your opportunity to show truly that you are a great improviser. And I think oh, yeah. the worst thing that you can do as an improviser is throw somebody under the bus or show that you think that they are fucking up this. I truly think that that is the worst thing you can do. Yeah. I think it's far more egregious to be mean and nasty, even just in your mind with judgment, because it's such a, a nasty sort of energy to put out than it is to do bad improv. So palpable and real and everybody feels it. Everybody, the whole room will feel it. If there's one person on a team who thinks that they're better than other people in the room, the team will never succeed. Right. And that's a major problem. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you for another hour, but I shouldn't take up this much of your time (laughs) Um, we're at the end of the episode we usually uh, try to create something together Uh, we can create anything you would like to uh, try to come up with here briefly oh my gosh Um, let's see I don't know Um, you said you are an improviser right yes we could we could try to come up with an exercise to work on something that you're struggling with or that you are thinking about a lot I love that idea. Yeah. Uh, let's see. One thing I am not strong at, uh, I think, is the game, especially when it comes to heightening 
the game. I, I think I, my friends who are listening are going to say, Jason, you're not bad at improv. I'm not saying I'm bad at improv. <laughs> I just think the uh, UCB style uh, is something I want to get better at because it's just not something I is. It's not my strong suit. Sure. What is a good exercise that I could practice, especially if I'm alone and not, you know, don't have a practice going on? What's something I could do that could help me figure out game? Just to clarify, are you saying that um, you're just like finding game in general, just uh, just like isolating it and finding it? Uh, that's a good question. Or like once um, you have an unusual thing, how do you how do you actually package it into a game and heighten it? I would say the first one. I recognize when the game exists when because the people I play with do a really good job of saying like, here's the thing we're playing with, but. When it comes to me being the one to try to isolate it or or if we're just discovering things together and it's just one of those kind of scenes where we haven't figured it out yet, how can I isolate the the 1% weird and then heighten that? Oh, hmm. And can you do something? Is there something you can do alone or when you're by yourself? If that's a possibility, because I'm usually not an improv practice <laughs> just during the day i have plenty of time i could be trying to hone my skills well i mean i think you know i mean something you can certainly do at home is watch online i mean ny comedy i think it is the youtube channel that posts all of the ucbny cage matches which is a show that's run at the theater for over 10 years and is a year-long tournament uh um that has a that has like every year there's a there's a, a champion and it's all improv it's 25 minutes that every week it's two teams go up against each other and one team gets voted by the audience to continue uh to the next week and um there aren't a t- there isn't a ton of great improv available online but that is available and it's available every week and i do think that that is something that you could alone by yourself you could watch and really pay attention to um really remind yourself that they are doing this in the moment that they have no preconceived notion about what's going to happen on stage and listen to how they specifically how they react to one another and how when an unusual thing occurs um how the other person in the scene uh reacts to that because because Ian Walsh has this analogy that an unusual thing is like um, is like a wall, you know, wall ball <laughs> that, that that game wall yeah. ball where you like hit a ball up against the wall and it's like literally that boring. <laughs> yeah. He has this analogy that it's like, um, oh my god, I'm sorry. And I also said Ian Walsh, and I meant to say Ian Roberts. Um, Ian Roberts has this analogy uh, where you an unusual thing is like wall ball so if you if you had to do an unusual thing do something unusual as an improviser and the other people in the scene don't represent the wall to create a strong reaction to your unusual thing and be like whoa this is crazy hit your unusual thing back to you so that you have a chance to explore it a little bit more and sharpen it a little bit more if there wasn't that wall there, the unusual thing would just like spiral out into nothingness and just, you know, go out into the parking lot and never come back and would be so crazy. So really the first step, I think, to sharpening and solidifying a game, which again is not just an unusual thing, but an unusual thing heightened and explored, that 
all, all relies on a strong reaction and a strong, what we call, it used to be, like, framing, mm-hmm. which is really just, I mean, mostly just a reaction that specifically points out what the other person in the scene finds to be unusual. So you can watch those cage matches and listen for that. Like, listen for the language of people not just being unusual, because it's pretty easy to be unusual, I think. Like, you, it's pretty clear to know what is normal and what's not. But it's really hard, and it's a skill. It's an active skill to to react appropriately and to react in a way that'll help that'll help solidify and sharpen a game. And the UCB manual has really, really good um, explanation and and uh, exercises on reacting and framing. But right. everybody does it, so you can watch those page match videos and see if you can listen for that kind of stuff in terms of like what else you can do alone i'm not really sure <laughs> but uh, well what about uh an exercise that i could take to uh my theater company that i'm in and and we can do together what's an exercise we can uh, come up with for that oh sure well in terms of like i said i think i think the most i think the most crucial part of uh finding and playing game is reactions uh our reactions strong reactions. And so I think um, a really good exercise, and again, I know we said we would make something and I did not make this up. Uh, This is actually in the UCB manual, I think, Um, is, uh, oh, actually, I don't think it is. I think there's something similar in the manual that I changed. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, you know, you get two people up. Um, One person is the only person who's allowed to add information to the scene. So they are the only people who um, can introduce anything new to the scene. The other person in the scene, your only job is to paraphrase and repeat back to the person what they said. So if the first person goes up and they say, um, uh, man, that was a really beautiful wedding, the second person would repeat back to them, you think it was a really great wedding. You just repeat back what they said. You're not performing. You're not in the scene. You don't have to... Um, you don't have to sort of pretend that the paraphrasing is a line. You literally like become a paraphrase robot. You just are repeating back to them. So then the other person keeps adding information. So they keep, you know, so then maybe their second line is like, you really, uh, you really were great out there. Like, I know, um, I know, you know, uh, it was so hot or something. Like it was, it was, God, it was scorching, but, um, but you really stayed cool or I don't know anything. They just keep adding information. You keep paraphrasing it back to them. The second person keeps paraphrasing it back to them until that first person does anything that the paraphrasing improviser deems unusual. And then the person paraphrasing stops paraphrasing and reacts hard, says anything uh, that is a clear, strong reaction to what they thought was unusual. So, um, so, for example, um, let's see, it was so hot at the wedding. Um, uh, and then the first, you know, the first person that's adding information reveals that they had a bathing suit on under their tuxedo the whole time or something. I mean, that's very broad and obviously unusual. But then the person paraphrasing would drop the paraphrasing and instead switch over to reacting. And they would say, uh, you had a bathing suit? You had a bathing suit on under your tuxedo? Something that is really clearly a strong reaction to exactly what was unusual. So instead of just going like, whoa, man, you would be specific. What did you think was unusual? You would say, you had a you had a bathing suit on under your tuxedo? And then from that point on, 
you are just doing a regular scene. Nobody's paraphrasing. And you focus on why he had the bathing suit on. And then, you know, uh, from whatever the justification is, you, you know, uh, when it's hot out, I always make sure I have a bathing suit on because I'm ready to, I want to go, I'm like ready to go swimming at any point any time or something you know that's a great thing i hope somebody's writing this down but um whatever the justification (laughs) is then you just say if that's true what else is true and work from there and try to but but it's it's a price to practice um to practice that that crucial moment of listening enough to then notice what's happened notice what's unusual and to react to it in a specific way and react and to also take out i think what's hard when you're learning is that you don't know going into a scene who's going to be unusual or who's not and some people feel more comfortable i think most people when you're first starting feel comfortable being unusual even though i was the opposite i never felt comfortable being unusual when i was starting but uh, i think most people do when they're starting and so taking out the element just taking it off the table like you're going to be unusual and you're not you know that and so because of that you're not like in the scene being like oh god who's going to be unusual who's going to have to right, and right. You kind of take that off the table and you know okay you're going to be unusual you're not your job is only to listen your job is to work on reacting to something unusual and hearing something and reacting to it because that's also a skill it's also like a skill you have to work on to hear unusual things that i love and then let's say uh just to create something let's say people have mastered that so the next level would be uh, the next exercise would be similar to that but instead of the second person only paraphrasing they respond in a way that um, maybe adds information, but it is so rooted in what person A said. Are you are you saying that? Um, but going into the scene, you would still know that okay, you're going to definitely end up being unusual, and you're definitely going to frame them. Yeah, instead of the paraphrasing, the second person is responding, and you know, probably adding new information. But it's a direct result of what the first person was saying person a yeah i think you could probably say you could probably do like a level two exercise where it was like okay going to the scene we know person a that you're going to end up being unusual and that person b you're going to end up framing person a but person b you don't have to paraphrase you just have to be normal so your job is to just try to not do anything unusual and that's also good because it's a practice in playing base reality, like just playing normal. Mm-hmm. Can we call it Senator make ups <laughs> Yeah, we can call this Senator make ups So level one is uh, is the the paraphrasing back and forth until person B hears something unusual and then they switch over to a strong reaction. Level two is, you know, we still know person A and person B. But person B is is able to talk normally and add information. They're just not allowed to be unusual. And then I guess level three would be like we don't know who's going to be unusual. So I guess level three would just be a normal scene, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. Level three would just be like okay, now let's take off the training wheels and try to just do this without knowing who's going to be unusual. There it is. I like it. There it is. Thanks for being on the podcast. You were a really wonderful guest to have. Oh, thanks so much, Jason. It's so nice to to meet you. I hope I get to meet you in person one day. Me too. As soon as you were mentioning doing improv at 17, I thought, oh, she's a badass. This is why Doug suggested her, because she's great. 
<laughs> Doug's the best. Yeah. And so are you. So thanks for being here to do the interview. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I had a great time. I love that talk so much. Thanks, Douglas Wittick, for hooking that up. Lots of sound advice for how to approach improv, not just in the scenes, but in terms of the community of improv. There were a couple of those moments in there where uh, I gave those sort of amens you give in church where you're not actually saying amen out loud. It's just when you hear something you'll like, you just go, mm, mm, yeah, that's good, that's good. <laughs> Lindsay Calloran, dropping knowledge. If you find yourself in New York City, then watch Lindsay perform with her team, Dr. Snake, on Tuesday nights, which is UCB's Herald Nights. Check out her website, lindsaycalloran.com, to see videos of her work, like the College Humor videos and her web series. Again, the website is lindsaycalloran.com. The link is in the description. Today's episode was sponsored in part by the support of wonderful people like Andrew Van and Greg Horace. Thank you for your support. If anyone else would like to support the podcast, you can at thereitispod.com. You can donate one time or monthly. May you all have their-itis. Don't forget to follow the podcast and me on Twitter and like us on Facebook. There it is, another episode of There It Is. In next week's episode, I talk to Atlanta stand-up Jared Harris... Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.